Welcome to They Didn't Teach Us That in Seminary, the Broadmoor Baptist Church of Baton Rouge podcast. that Mary gave us this morning of a car without wheels. It would be difficult to get anywhere with, without wheels in our car. James says, what is it, my brothers and sisters, if you say you have faith but do not have works? So faith by itself, if it has no works, is dead. Faith, the car, works the wheels. So faith that works gets to work, right? But what kind of work are we talking about here? What is James talking about? We have to back up a few verses to the verses we talked about on Wednesday night for some of us to understand that James is talking about an issue of favoritism, of showing partiality. I heard this passage many times 
But only recently did I hear that James is probably writing to people like you and me, people in the middle, people of what we would call middle class. In fact, Trace Hawthorne, who's president of the Fund for Theological Education, says these people are somewhere between rich and poor. They're not the rich because the rich are those whose attention they're trying to get. And they're not the poor because they're the ones that are being ignored. So they're somewhere in the middle. They don't have all the rings of gold on their fingers, but they're not destitute and desperate either. They sound like us. They're in between people who are gathering in worship, in court, or at anywhere, anytime. These were gatherers, Christians, who were showing special attention to the wealthy members, the wealthy people in the community. But James doesn't tell us why exactly. We can guess. Maybe they're in the middle of a big building program. Maybe they were dealing with a budget crunch. Maybe they were hoping to do some business. And they were catering to the wealthier folks. In fact, I learned a lesson uh, many years ago at a church in my college days. I saw a woman there every Sunday. She was one of the most faithful people in that church. She shook hands with everybody, always had a great smile on her face. And I thought, wow, what a model of an extroverted Christian she is. And I went and told someone, I think she is so welcoming and wonderful. And the gentleman shot me down by saying, you know, she owns the local furniture store and she's here to make business contacts. Maybe that's it. Maybe they're catering to the folks to make business contacts. Maybe they're trying to improve their social status. We are known by the company we keep, right? By the LinkedIn connections we have and social media, friends, the parties we're invited to, people we hang out with. Maybe, maybe they've been caught schmoozing with people to become popular. Or maybe it's this. Maybe they recognize that there's a need in the church that only those who have means are able to provide for. They're the ones able to get things done. One of my best friends in seminary became the fundraiser for our alma mater. Now, he used to call me just as friends, but then he would call me to raise funds. It was his job to do that. He said it was his job to get us small fish giving something and finding the big fish who could change the water in the pond. So it's not that different in churches that attending to the wealthy members among them, you find the ministers going to making, make sure they're okay, everyone's comfortable, things are going well for them in the church, keeping them happy, 
making sure they keep their pledge. At the same time, the committees and finance team can be looking carefully at the budget, trying to figure out where in the budget the cuts will come from. And in all likelihood, they'll choose the lights and the air over outreach. It happens in every congregation at some time. So these are real choices. They're ancient choices, too. I think as old as these early congregations we read about here in James. James's sermon is clearly that God shows preference for the poor, and we're fine with that if we are the poor. A young female student at Drake University writes that one day in class, a professor gave the students a survey that they were glad to take. It was about their professors, how well they liked or did not like their professors. They were glad to take that survey because they were paying $40,000 a year in tuition. They had some beef with the school. Male student in the group mentioned he didn't like how the professor showed favoritism to the female students. Well, this woman who tells the story said, I told him I had no problem with that. Of course, they all laughed and went on. The next week, a friend of hers said she hated her professor because her professor was always showing favoritism to the male students. And this same young woman who said she was okay with the professors showing favoritism to women said, this is an outrage. This should not be. She was angry. Why was she mad? Because we don't mind favoritism as long as it benefits us or our group of people. Even though James says God prefers the poor, he doesn't condemn those who are wealthy in the passage. The rich had their problems, unending problems, but the poor had their problems as well. I read not long ago that the ideal salary is between seventy and eighty thousand dollars. Some of you will say, I wish I made that. Others say, I'm glad I don't. What I learned from that is that this is the ideal salary because you can buy what you need, but when you make more than that, those doing the study found that there were more headaches that came with the responsibilities. And so the quality of life began to de- begins to decrease over that amount. So what is it about us humans that we're so easily seduced by the gold and jewels and the glamour of life? Even when James says those who have gotten rich may have gotten rich at our expense. That's what he says. Why do you curry the favor of the rich when they're the ones that burden you? And take you to court. But as we said Wednesday night, wealth is not on trial in James. What is on trial is showing favoritism and partiality. 
James's sermon is about those who choose to associate with the rich at the expense of the poor. And you can insert any discrimination for that. So can you picture that setting the morning James's letter was read to the congregation? I can feel the tension in the room. Folks heard this sermon. I imagine people were using their peripheral vision to look around the room to see who was sitting next to them, to see who was sitting next to whom and where they were sitting in the room. I imagine there were people who had their heads bowed, fidgeting with their fingernails and their rings. I imagine there were some who were rich who were aware of those who had been playing them, who had been carrying up to them to get their favor while they were neglecting the poor. It was one of those worship services, I think, where most people wish they had not showed up that day. A hard word. Unless you were the poor, and then you're thinking, yes, in your face. Right? When, what James' listeners may have fallen prey to was a very common problem for all humans. And that is, when resources are scarce, when the future looks uncertain, when enemies are at the gate and we find ourselves hedging our bets. It's about survival. It's about survival. We do what it takes when money is tight. It kind of sounds crazy here in James that we might stand with the poor at times like these. It seems to make more sense that we would stand with the rich and those who could benefit us. But the poor may not be able to give us that support. It's a touchy and perplexing kind of place that we stand. We need those who have means to provide for the services. But sometimes it comes at the expense of the poor. Hawthorne says that at the Fund for Theological Education, they have a program for students. It's a 14-week uh, uh, resource. It provides 14 different experiences for those students who are looking to serve, who are receiving funds for their theological education. At one of the gatherings... A young woman told him the story. She said that she grew up upper middle class. And while her family taught her about how to live a meaningful life, she said it was also couched in terms of success, financial success. She said when she got to college, it was hard to live on $100 a month. But this program of service, she said, made her spend time with the people that needed the services. And she had to rethink what being rich and what being poor meant. 
she had to unlearn some of the things that she had been taught. She said, after a few months from serving those folks, I was angry, she said. I was angry at the wealth in our country and the persistence of homelessness and hunger and poverty. But she said, in time, I began to realize that had I not been given that opportunity to stand with them and live among them, I wouldn't have known. She realizes, she said, that she is in a unique position to stand between the rich and the poor, to stand between them, to move between them, a unique place to stand. She said, in fact, she felt like that was her call in life, that God had called her to introduce these folks to these folks. Isn't that what James is calling us to do? I don't think James is saying you should favor one over the other. Flip a coin, favor these folks, flip it again, favor those folks. I don't think he's merely criticizing the rich and empathizing with the poor. We're called to stand in the middle, stand between what Parker Palmer calls the tragic gap. The tragic gap between what is and what should be. A place between rich and poor, between the privileged few and the foreign masses. A place between the preferred race and the outcast immigrants, between the strong and the weak. The place to stand where the cross stands between what is and what should be. Sandor Tesler, you may have heard of, he knew what it meant to stand in that tragic gap. Tesler left Hungary for the, the United States after escaping a concentration camp pretty early during World War II. He came to Spartanburg, South Carolina where he was trained as a textile worker. He was really good. In the 1950s, after Board versus Brown versus Board of Education, Tesla became anxious, he said, because the people around him, there was an intensity of racism. He said that there was a reemergence of the KKK. It began to intensify so much, he said, it sounded familiar to my ears, to my experience, to the folks in Europe. He said, I couldn't ignore it for the sake of business. He said he went to his foreman and asked, where are racial tensions the worst in our area? And the foreman said, I don't know, I don't know where it's worse. He said, but I don't think it can get much worse than around Kings Mountain. And so that very day, Tesla announced he was going to build a new factory on Kings Mountain. When word got out, the white mayor came to see Mr. Tesla, asked if he planned on hiring white workers. Mr. Tesla told him, you recruit good workers, 
And if they're good enough, I'll hire them. And soon after, a black pastor from a large African-American church came to see Tesler. He asked him the same question. Are you planning on hiring any black workers? And he said the same thing. He said, you go and recruit good workers. And if they're good enough, I'll hire them. He hired 16 new workers, eight white, eight black. They gave him the introduction to the factory, a tour to the, to the mill. And afterward, one of the white employees said, is this one of those integrated plants? And Mr. Tesler said, you're being paid twice as much as anyone else in this area. You can work with us here the way we work, or you can go and find work elsewhere. All 16 employees stayed. But the factory began to grow. As it began to grow, they hired more employees. And this time, the foreman, white foreman, took them on their tour, gave them an introduction to the plant. And as they returned, again, one of the white employees asked, is this one of those integrated plants? And this time, the foreman said, you're making twice as much as anyone else around here. You can work with us here the way we work, or you can go and find work elsewhere. And they stayed. Sander Tesler stood in that tragic gap. Between what is and what should be. Not choosing between rich and poor, or black and white, naked or clothed, hungry, or fed, sick or healthy. All those divisions, I think James is saying, all those divisions are false divisions because all are loved by God. He calls us to stand with the cross. There are many forms today of these divisions. We divide ourselves among parties, too, between genders, and on and on. James says the source of these divisions come from our hearts, that we carry private judgments against some folks. And that affects and impacts our behaviors, right? Someone said, if we are open-minded and tolerant of one group but discriminate against another, we're still violating the law of liberty. But we can't pick and choose who we love when we have a God who loved the world and when we're called to love our neighbors. What is it, my brothers and sisters, if you say you have faith but do not have works? And faith without works is dead. Faith can never be exercised by proxy. You have to practice it. You have to put the wheels on the car. Howard Hendricks put it this way, there's no such thing as a correspondence course for swimming. You have to practice swimming to learn it. Not just hearing about it. A faith that works gets to work. The story of a town whose citizens were all ducks 
Every Sunday, the ducks would waddle out of their houses, waddle down Main Street into their church. They waddled into the sanctuary and they would squat down where their pews were. Duck choir waddles in, takes his place. Duck minister comes forward, opens his duck Bible. He reads to them, Ducks, God has given you wings. With wings you can fly. With wings you can mount up and soar like eagles. No walls can confine you. No fences can hold you. You have wings. God has given you wings. You can fly like birds. And all those ducks said, Amen. And they waddled out all the way home. So there's no more time for waddling. God has given us wings. God has given us wings like minds and body, hands, resources. Time to fly. Time to put our faith to work. To grow our faith. That works. Will you join me now in the collective response that's in your order of worship? It is easy to be overwhelmed by the pain of the world. We want to turn off the news and tune out the stories of human suffering. But God calls us to pay attention to those around us, to do more than simply give to worthy causes, to do more than pray the situation into God's hands. Our faith is to be lived out in righteous actions that we might resist wickedness and avoid condemnation for our lack of compassion. We are challenged to meet the needs of others, to reach out with hand and heart, to provide for the real needs of others. Let's stand now for an invitation.
Thanks for tuning into They Didn't Teach Us That in Seminary, the Baltimore Baptist Church of Baton Rouge podcast. Please like, review, and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or YouTube. If you have any questions, please submit them through the Anchor app. Or join us on Sunday mornings at 10.30 a.m. right in our own Broadmoor Baptist Church in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. Otherwise, I hope you have a good week.